This is TechSnap, episode 361. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on March 27th, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, iX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is my co-host, the admin, the tech, and the presenter, Mr. Payne. Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Hey there, Wes. You know, our warm-up story this week has me a little fired up. There's just no excuse. Mac OS High Sierra has been a security crap show, and we have another story this week about plain text passwords and encrypted external volumes. That's right. The folks over at Mac4N6, a forensic research firm specializing in Apple products, has been doing some digging through macOS logs, and they've found something interesting. Yeah, that's right. It turns out if you're running 10.13.1 and go to create a new encrypted APFS volume, well, your secret is stored in plain text in the log files. So anybody that has access to the log, anybody else that has really machine access and looking at the log files would just see right there in clear the password? Yeah, exactly. Think about that for a moment. That is a massive blunder. That's that's a big deal. That's That's worse than the blank root password issue. Yeah, you know, and in this case, they they were doing some testing on a removable USB system. So in that case, it's a little, you know, unless you have access to the machine that created it, then it's not a big deal. But if you're, you know, if someone can investigate your system while it's running and then is able to see that, especially if you've used that password anywhere else, which obviously you shouldn't, but but people do. Well, and anybody running High Sierra is potentially susceptible to this. And so if you had some sort of generic script and you could get the right permissions, you know where to look. Yeah, exactly. And it's pretty easy. They just, you know, just one log command. If you search for the right, you know, the the new FS message in the event logs, boom, there it is. You can see just the dash capital S flag and then the secret password in plain text. Now, as always, there are a couple complicating details here. Uh, it looks like the research was done using the new FS APFS command and a, let's call it semi-documented S flag. I'm not sure if this is the same behavior that would be reproduced if you're using a GUI tool. Unknown. Also, it does look like Apple's aware and implemented at least a partial fix. If you're using 10.13.2 or .3, this no longer applies when creating a new encrypted APFS volume, but does still apply if you're encrypting an existing unencrypted volume. Oh, okay. Which may be the case. So when you upgrade to High Sierra, the installer automatically uh, updates the HFS plus to APFS. So that would be an existing one, for example. Or if you had an existing USB thumb drive that you created before 10.3.3, is it 10.13.3? 10.13.3. Okay, so I, I think that's also fixed in two, though. So if I had a thumb drive I created on the uh, original release version of High Sierra and then encrypted it later, it would still be susceptible to this problem. The passphrase would still get logged in the log file as plain text, even on the latest version of High Sierra. Exactly. Okay, so it's not fully fixed. That's... No, and it, and I wonder, it does seem like maybe that? that that may be more common than people creating new APFS volumes, Yeah, uh, especially if that upgrade's happening. I just, so it sounds like Apple tried to fix this, but even that fix was a bit sloppy. Yeah, I wonder if there's like some sort of whitelist involved here and then, you know, too precise of a command. I guess we'll have to wait till the next rev and see what happens. Rumor has it that future versions of macOS are supposed to focus on stability and polish. That's the rumor that they're going to come out at with WWDC. I hope that's true because this is like the third sort of high profile embarrassing security flaw in High Sierra. It's frustrating from a company that prides itself on getting these details right. 
Well put. Now let's discuss the case of leaky Etsy D servers. Yeah, that's right. It seems like there's a data leak from one corner of the internet just about every week these days. No kidding. This time, it's our friend etcd. Uh, if you're not familiar with etcd, it's a distributed key value configuration store similar to Zookeeper or Console, and it's often used in distributed systems to store configuration that's needed that may vary by region or can change with time. Yeah, this came out of the CoreOS project, and if I'm not mistaken, it's trying to solve the problem of distributed configuration management storage. Like, it's, it's etcd itself. It's like distributed Etsy. Yeah? Exactly. In this case, the story starts with researcher Giovanni Colazzo doing a quick little search over at Shodan, our favorite search engine of the TextNet program. And he found a little over 2,000 internet-exposed etcd servers. Now... A lot of times etcds run in you know in a VPC behind a VPN in a in a private networking scenario not directly exposed to the internet and as a result by default it's unauthenticated HTTP requests. So in this case, the researcher was able to just write a simple script, ran through all the servers, and then sent some some just really simple GET requests to basically recursively grab all the keys in that server and then pull down their values, right? So it collected about 750 megabytes of data. And of course, it included a ton of juicy things like 8,000 passwords, a whole bunch of AWS keys, secret keys, private keys, basically all those little details that you wouldn't want anyone else to have. You know, the kinds of things you would have in your slash Etsy. Exactly. Why would they have Amazon Web Services keys in etcd? What What is that? Is that the applications that are storing their configuration there? Yeah, it's probably like, uh, it's probably sh- like Chef or, or something else. You know, you run your app and it needs to make AWS calls and mm. it has can have a key. And then basically you can configure um, .aws and then you put keys and login credentials and config there. Sure. And then your application can reach out using that authentication through all the various SDKs. So this was independently verified by a separate researcher as well. So it's not just uh, this uh, Konzalo guy or Colazolo guy, whatever his name is, this just uh, trying to make a name for himself. Uh, researcher Troy Mersch also told ours that he independently verified the findings and believes that the Internet-exposed etcd servers pose a serious concern for anyone operating one. I apologize to both those individuals for butchering their names. It's also uh, fun here if you go click through the show notes, you can see that in particular, some of Troy's research, he found some MySQL root passwords, and in at least one case, the password was one, two, three, four. So it may be, maybe mm-hmm. this is a QA staging cluster. There's there's no real data to be had, but in any case, this is all it all screams of bad practice. Um, etcd allows you to configure it if you do need to run it in an exposed environment. Use the provided TLS auth that you have. All the client server communications are then encrypted. The clients have to identify with the certificate much better. Perhaps the etcd developers should consider switching the default behavior to require authentication. Yeah, I'm not sure about the current configuration. I wonder too, maybe just a, you know, listening on localhost by default would, yeah. would be a halfway mitigation. Yeah. And then of course these admins could just get their etcd servers off the internet. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
do.co/snap. DigitalOcean is simplicity at scale. DigitalOcean gets out of your way so that way you can build something fast. In less than 55 seconds, you can get a droplet spun up on their crazy fast infrastructure with 99.99% uptime, SSDs for every system, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors and one-click deployments of entire application stacks or just the bare essentials that you need. And now DigitalOcean has rolled out flexible droplets where you can mix and match the resources that are the most appropriate to your application. do.co/snap. If you use that URL and you have a new account, you can sign up for a limited $100 credit to try out these new flexible droplets or their CPU optimized droplets, highly powerful droplets for active front-end systems or anywhere where you have some really high-end CPU compute needs. DigitalOcean has got it. do.co/action. Go over there and while you're checking out the site, visit their community documentation section. 2 hours ago as of this recording, they just posted a new guide you might love, how to block unwanted SSH login attempts with PyFilter on Ubuntu 16.04 box. DigitalOcean's got all kinds of documentation and guides to get the most out of your server setup. do.co/snap. Atlanta City government systems were shut down this previous week due to a ransomware attack. The FBI was called in, and at one point, they were even worried that payroll may have been on the line. Yes, well, payroll does tend to motivate employees. If you took a look at their Twitter account last week, they were experiencing outages on various customer-facing applications, including some that customers may use to pay bills or access court-related information, also important civic activities. Oh, yeah. We got some more details when a local NBC affiliate was sent a screenshot of a ransomware message demanding a payment of $6,800 to unlock each computer or or if you want Chris a lump sum of $51,000 to provide keys for all the infected systems. Oh boy, and I'm sure they want that in Bitcoin, please. Well, of course. Employees there received emails from the city's information technology department instructing them to just unplug all the computers if they noticed anything <laughs> suspicious. Oh no. Email slow, unplug it. <laughs> That'll help everybody get their work done. Ours reached out to the city, and uh, at the time, the Atlanta information management team was working diligently uh, with some support from Microsoft to yeah, try that, to resolve the issue. Isn't that interesting that they're working directly, quote, with Microsoft to resolve the issue? This is a more and more of a larger business for Microsoft for these hospitals and government agencies that find themselves in this position and don't really have the expertise on staff and don't know who to call. It's not like they just have some IT sh- superhero they just call up when things like this happen. They're totally left toolless. So they call Microsoft. Isn't that fascinating? Bringing in the big guns. And Microsoft's been building out departments internally to support these people. Yeah, it's a more direct support model than I think we've seen traditionally. Yeah, going in and trying to clean up the ransomware. And then the FBI gets brought in, too, and they say they're coordinating with the city of Atlanta to determine what happened. So a ransomware attack now goes to the FBI. I suppose it's a state office, so that makes sense. But Yeah, and it does, you know, it did seem like it caused at least some disruption to the city of Atlanta and the people that live there. Yeah, yeah. They, they was a big deal. They had a press conference, which is linked in the show notes. And the thing that's interesting about that is the mayor goes out and specifically points out, like, these are all the important people in our little government here. And there's a reason I have them all here. We're taking this very seriously. Oh, and here's our new chief technology officer. Uh, this is his first week on the job. 
It's a heck of a way to start your job. Ouch. Yeah, so they had to jump right in to try to figure this out. And the the problem seems to be it's a combination of systems that aren't fully up to date. They're, one of the first questions in the press conference was, there's a tip that told us that your systems were way behind, that your IT people had warned you they hadn't been patched. Do you have a Yikes. response to that? And the response is, well, we're still investigating what happened. Of course. But that's very likely. And it's typically they're understaffed. It's not prioritized right. And they also typically don't have adequate backups. Exactly. And, you know, it, it definitely can be a, you know, a staffing, a budget allotment issue in many cases. But I think also as citizens, we need to, you know, that's that's our money on the line as well. And that's I think true, we, have a, yeah. we have a right to have at least some insight or transparency into at least knowing that some proper IT practices are being applied yeah. even at the local level well like think of this too like it if i know this is really pie in the sky especially when you're an understaffed government it department but it should be of little consequence if the desktops get ransomware there shouldn't be any important data stored locally in their my documents folder on their spinning rust hard drive yeah exactly you should be able to nuke and pave that and re-image it and then they connect to a file server that ideally is running something like true nas free nas or linux with samba and it's not a windows box that also reduces your attack surface when it comes to ransomware. Right. And then if you have ACL set up properly, you know, limiting even if one system is affected. Right. Snapshots taken right. on a regular schedule. You've got your snapshots. You've got decent backups. These are all that you, you don't need to spend a dime on ransomware because you've spent it all preventively. Yeah, right. Exactly. If you can build a really good foundation, then the rest becomes simpler. Malware on the Android platform was found inside apps that were downloaded on the Play Store over 500,000 times. This time, however, there's an interesting and clever twist in how the malware authors prevented end users from figuring it out, at least at first. Yeah, it really, you know, when I first saw this, I was a little a little disturbed. You, you place at least some modicum of trust in the Play Store, perhaps more on the on the competitive App Store, but... You, know, you, you like to think that there's some even automated review done. I'm I'm probably not going to get actual malware. I might get a lot of ads or a spammy app. Not so in this case. Yeah, the one thing I will give the Play Store is they are quick about pulling apps when they discover something or when they get a lot of user complaints. But in this case, the developers were able to trick the users into thinking nothing was going on. So I'm betting the Play Store didn't get a lot of negative signals from users that installed the app. Yeah, I bet so as well. In this case, it was snuck onto the Play Store disguised as actually seven different apps, six QR readers and a smart compass. And of course, we often see this, you know, just like a dumb little utility. Users don't really know which one to pick. So you just hit one and hit install and hope it works yeah, well enough. Like when you're just quickly looking for a damn QR code <laughs> yeah. reader. I like the idea, though, of a smart compass way better than a dumb compass, Wes. Oh, who wants a dumb compass? No, and in this case, this smart compass came with malware. So following installation of one of these apps, the malware waited for six hours before beginning work on its true purpose, So, which is serving up adware, flooding the user with full screen adverts, opening adverts on web pages, and sending various notifications containing ad-related links. Yay! But it sits around and waits, so you install it, and nothing funky happens, and it's a legit QR code reader, so it reads the QR code. So you're thinking... Yeah, maybe you install it before bed, you wake up in the next morning, and now suddenly your phone is infected with malware. Totally. 
all the activity that it was doing was basically designed just to make some click-based revenue for the attackers. But they they weren't willing to limit themselves to just when you're actually running their app, like a you know like a decent app would do. No, this one made sure that you got ads no matter what. And it looks like maybe one of the ways they got away from the Play Store's automated scans is the code for the adware was embedded in what just looks like standard Android programming libraries within the files of the app. But they're actually the malware components. Yeah, they snuck their ad-related code into a graphics subcomponent. And so it really just looks like a standard, you know, graphic part of the app, not really the meat of the detail, you know, not the meat of the app. So in the the verbiage, the parlance of the article, it would look like just typical files you would include for an app that you're developing for Android. Right. And not and not the, you know, the logic or the control code, really just more like the, the code specifying the graphics and the layout of the application. I wonder if that bypasses some of how Google's automated scanning works. You know, do they not scan the entire app? They just sort of pick pick apart the non-standard parts? That does seem to be the sub-story here, right? Is that they have figured out some way past the automated scanner, and this may give us a hint as to what that is. Right. In this case, seemingly a combination of this obfuscation and their, you know, just wait six hours before doing yeah. anything, which I'm sure makes it harder to figure out, harder to pinpoint exactly which app is, yeah. is behind all this. There's some several clever um, approaches at play to do this because you also have to have a functional app, you know, like a QR code or a compass, simple applications to build. So they're not hard, but they have to work. So you have that aspect of it, too, is there's somebody's doing some function, some actual development here. Right. And in this case, they're also running a configuration server. So each time the app starts, it phones home and grabs like a Google ad ID to use. It has a bunch of other configuration options that it can, you know, you can get customization down the road here. You have to imagine there's like some sort of team in Google that's been mobilized now to like track down that command and control server and figure out who was behind the Play Store account that published this. Like there's some team now that's doing a full-fledged investigation, at least I hope. Yeah, I'd really like to see some sort of NBC drama based on their story, maybe in the fall. (laughs) There is at least a happy ending here. Sophos, the people who discovered this malware, quickly reported it to Google, and they've all been removed from the Play Store. TechSnap.ting.com. Ting is a smarter way to do mobile. And if you go to our URL, TechSnap.ting.com, they'll take $25 off a device. And if you bring a device, they'll give you $25 in service credit. I've been a Ting customer for nearly four years. And I'll tell you why. It's pay for what you use wireless. So if you're even just a little bit savvy, you can supplement calling and messaging services with free services. You can use Wi-Fi to pin and download your podcasts and music. And then you just pay for however much you use, minutes, messages, and megabytes. Nationwide coverage. They have a CDMA and a GSM network with no contracts, no early termination fees, and no quote-unquote service agreements that they try to sneak in now at those duopoly carriers. Go over to Ting and find something for yourself. Start at techsnap.ting.com. SIM cards are just $9. You can order them and get it in any device you want. There's lots of possibilities, lots of devices to choose from, and excellent customer service. techsnap.ting.com. Every day around the world, dozens of vulnerabilities are found by security researchers or hackers. This week, we go from hacked system all the way to a zero-day discovery. It all kicks off a few weeks ago when a customer of InfoTeam Security 
phoned them up and says, hey, something seems a bit off, a little strange. Could you guys come take a look at this? This client was using an external SMTP server, you know, just just to send email here. And they had a web application known as Interspire Email Marketer. Oh, this tool allows management and, you know, monitoring of various promotional email campaigns. One of these tools just to go send marketing emails. The client's account had been blocked because it was spotted sending spam. That's uh, that's some news you're never excited to get. Oh, no, my systems, not me. Once the client connected to the service, it was clear that the monthly quota of the account was almost reached and that the latest email sent had all been spam. Oh, man, somebody gotten on there and was blasting people out from their system. Now, of course, in this kind of situation, the first thing to do is change the login credentials. Obviously, you've been compromised. Go change passwords. Go change anything that's sensitive. Yeah, for sure. Then you've got to track it down and figure out what could be going on here. Yeah, at this stage, there was a couple hypotheses that they they were looking at. Number one, the third party service itself had a vulnerability and hackers got in that way and were just using their account by happenstance. That would be great, but probably not likely. Exactly. Number two, the customer's login credentials have been stolen by phishing or other methods, right? Maybe maybe there was a mm-hmm. human failure. Yeah, very likely. Not as good. <laughs> no, not at all. Or the third option, another system or application suffers from a vulnerability and the attacker was able to achieve SMTP connection credentials that way. Yeah, all kinds of awful and most likely, I'd say. So where do we go from here? Well, we need to go back to the origins of the attack and try to understand the cause, the course, and the goal of the attacker. Was this just an opportunistic attack, or was it an actual targeted attack against this client in particular? After changing and securing the new credentials, they started investigating option number three. So they went and investigated the logs of the web server hosting that IEM tool. They've primarily focused on the days right before the spam started happening, which that makes sense. And they quickly identified an intrusion from a suspicious IP address localized in the Philippines. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a good place to start for sure. So digging through the logs, the first thing they noticed was it looked like a lot of the requests they were seeing had a refer field that also pointed to the Philippines, in particular set by Google. So it does sort of seem that this is just an opportunistic attack that they'd been you know, using some crafted Google search and had landed upon this page. That's a really interesting way to figure that out. And that makes total sense. But there's a few more interesting pieces of information lurking in them, their logs. Ooh. In particular, they noticed that two, uh, there was a series of two requests to index.php. Sure. But the size of the request or the size of the response, wildly different between the two. Oh, really? Now, that's strange. It should always be the same if it's the same index.php. Right. So it turns out when index.php displays the login form, it's about it's about 5K. Okay. But when it displays the administrative interface, meaning, you know, after you've logged in, getting the full page, it's it's over 30K. Oh. So it looks like the attacker had managed to access the administrative interface after two get requests and didn't actually use the login form, right? So normally if you're using a login form, there's going to be a post request that sends the credentials from the form to the backend system. Right. They weren't seeing this. Hmm. So what was making the index.php change then? That's a great question. The elements there, it suggests that the vulnerability is probably related to something in the cookies or cooking management, right? Something related to the session. He is able to get the system to let him in, even without seemingly having to go through the normal form required to get that sort of cookie. Right. Okay. And so we know we're dealing with PHP here. 
Yes, we do, unfortunately. So seems like it's time to go take a look at that index.php, dig through there, and get an idea of maybe what's happening cookie-wise. Yeah, it, after doing some digging, it looks like, unfortunately, this particular application is built in a way that it's pretty easy for a novice programmer to make just simple, easy mistakes. That's unfortunate. With a quick grep, they were able to locate the parts of the code that you know actually handled cookie management. And just a quick reading provides the basic understanding of the logic. First, they get the cookie called IEM cookie login, check that it's not empty, then compare a value in the cookie named RAND to a value in the server memory. If the value is the same, the user is authenticated and can access the administration interface. So already this sounds a little sketchy. In this case, the difficulty comes down to sort of a peculiarity of how PHP is implemented. Basically, they're trying to do a fairly standard check, right, where you've, you've written out some some value into the login form um, and then comparing it to a server-side value to validate that, that you know, this user is actually, this is legitimate and it matches stuff stored in the backend system for the user that they've gone through all the required steps and are thus valid. Okay. That involves comparing to comparing this value that's retrieved from the cookie called rand. This comparison is being made using the double equals operator in PHP. And if you're not familiar with PHP, the double equals operator, as contrasted to the triple equals operator, it will do some type juggling. So in this case, if you have if you play with it, you'll see that basically all strings are true. So if you compare a string to true, if you convert a string to a Boolean, it will be the Boolean true. So if you are able to somehow get the Boolean value true into that cookie value, no matter what is stored on the server side, that comparison, once the type juggling happens, it's always going to be true, and it's always going to return, yep, valid logged in user. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And and so the attackers figured this out? Yeah, exactly. And how do you suppose they figured that out? They must know about this problem in the application, it must be a known thing because that's why they were searching Google for it. So it became known somewhere in some circle, and then you just build an exploit around it. Yeah. The, huh. the researchers were able to just easily reproduce it. They, they inspected the serialized cookie, deserialized it, reserialized it. You basically then just go modify it from returning a string value to returning a positive Boolean value. It's all base64 encoded, sent to the server. Once it's, you know, once it's serialized back on the server side, turned back into a Boolean data structure, that's it. Yeah. You're logged in. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't even need the login page. <laughs> There's always the angle of, were they up to date? Did they patch their S? What was the vendor's responsibility? So it looks like this problem was actually fixed in November of 2015. Yikes. But it's not super simple. Number one, uh, the company that makes this, uh, Interspire, didn't communicate that this was a security flaw that was fixed. They just said, new version. And number two, the second complication is, if you don't have a current maintenance contract, then when you check the, is there any updates available, it just says, your software is currently running the latest version. doesn't tell you there's a newer version available if you don't have a maintenance contract. You're not even advertised that you should go pay for the next version. Just nothing. Yeah, nothing. That would be difficult as an administrator. Following in the steps of the attackers, the info team were able to recreate the Google search that likely led these people to attack this particular server in particular, basically constructing a specific string that matches you know anything running this IEM software. When they did that, they found almost 2,230 vulnerable instances just running Interspire email marketer ready to be attacked. 
ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's the landing page to go to support the show and learn more about iX Systems. But even better, they've got a white paper there that you can grab. And that's particularly useful if you need to grease the wheels up the chain and convince management it's time to switch to a better hardware provider. That's what companies like Groupon, Mozilla, Adobe, Evernote, Trend Micro, and many, many more like Juniper, NASA, I always love that one, Sony, Tumblr, Sega, Warner Brothers, lots and lots of edu- in the education sector too. They have tons of customers in education and manufacturing, financial services, healthcare, state and government, and of course high tech. And there's a reason nobody does it like iX. It's one thing to have great hardware, which they excel at. It's another thing to have excellent customer service, which they have white glove customer service. It's an entirely different thing to bring that all together to establish long-term partnerships with industry partners and with open source communities. And then you have the iX Systems crew. They can install and configure any open source operating system that you choose. Any open source software that you need can be installed and optimized on your system before it even reaches your data center. Alan Jude does this all the time. He orders systems from iX, has them load the config, get everything set up, and ships them directly to his data center. After your servers arrive, iX Systems experts can help you as well. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Build infrastructure that lasts, that works for you, and work with iX Systems team to achieve it. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And while you're over at iX, head over to their blog and check out their sponsorship of CodeStock and CodeStock Academy. New announcement over there, as well as some details about TrueNAS being certified for Veeam Backup. And I'll give it one more plug, their review of Scale16x. I always love those blog posts. All of that and more, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks for visiting techsnap.systems slash contact and sending us your questions, your feedback, and follow-up. And our first one comes from Jeff this week. He says, hey, Chris and Wes, regarding the In the Garage shows, as a college student heading into the IT uh, field as a career, I find them quite helpful and informative. I'd love if you just kept doing them. Regards, Jeff. And we'd asked last week, what do you guys think about when we go out in the studio data center, a.k.a. the garage, and we do like the free NAS migration stuff? We kind of tap the brakes a little bit because our early data suggests those episodes weren't as popular. Um, but we, we also got feedback on Twitter uh, that people also seem to be pretty positive about it. And we got another one from Tyler. Yeah, that's right. Tyler writes, voting for behind the scenes. How you guys get stuff done, content, freeness, BF sense, all of it. Thanks for all the hard work you guys do. Hey, you're very welcome. He also notes he'd love to learn more about getting your foot in the door as a Linux sysadmin. The DevOps world and how does it how does it compare to Linux sysadmin? What what are the differences there? And some more tooling comparisons, Ansible, Chef, Puppet, that sort of thing. Tyler, those are some great questions. I'm gonna punt part of this to the audience. Dear audience, what are your tips and tricks for people that want to get into the field as a sysadmin? And what tools do they need to know now? What should they be learning as they're coming into the field? TechSnap.System slash contact. We'll try to do a mini roundup in the feedback of next week's episode in 362 of people's advice for how to get into the field, what tools you need to use, what tools you need to invest your time into learning. And if you're already in the field, I'd I think it'd also be great if we could spend some time talking about how to stay relevant, what you should be focused on, what new things to look into. All those kinds of things I think could be helpful too. So all of that also very welcome at techsnap.systems 
slash contact. These are really common questions that we get into the show that I'd like to try to get some answers for. Yeah, we have such a wonderful audience filled with knowledgeable, talented people. I think it behooves us to try to take advantage. Only a few of you are really going to do this. So please, if this is something you have the inspiration to do or the time or are willing to do, please consider going to techsnap.system slash contact because it'd be really valuable for a lot of people out there. Well, that brings us to the end of today's program. We're still taking your opinion on if we should keep doing the free NAS segments, uh, but the early indications are, yeah, you guys like it, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to say we keep going because right here in my hot hands, I have a package from listener David who, from outside the country, had to go through customs in New York to get here. Impressive. Send us a little bit of extra RAM for the Freenas box. Oh, yeah. amazing. So uh, we'll be able to pop that in there, and that really kind of makes me want to get going on that thing. So. I think it's a sign. Let us know, because uh, everybody was pretty positive on it. Uh, we'd love to hear from, uh, from you on what you think about the In the Garage Freenas segments and things like that. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at West Payne. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Our website, techsnap.systems, for all the links to everything we've talked about. Please subscribe to the show to get us weekly, techsnap.systems slash subscribe for all the different podcast catchers. Or just pop that feed in directly, techsnap.systems slash RSS. Thanks for being here. See you next week. 